Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray this evening that you help us to understand the things that you show us, that you teach us, that you want us to understand from 2 Kings chapter 2. And most of all, we pray that you might help us to see all the plans you have fulfilled in Jesus, your son. And this we ask in his name. Amen. Well, uh, how do you feel about leadership succession? Uh, There are all sorts of leadership successions that happen in our world, every day in our world. It could be a new boss at work. So there you are at work, a new person's coming in, the old boss has moved on, and so in comes the new guy, the new girl. Uh, Or it could be that two I see, so the second in charge at work. Uh, They've been under the the leadership of the leader. They've been groomed for the last three years under the wing and, and tutelage of the senior for three years, and now it's their time to take over. Or think even of our churches. Uh, church pastors, they, they come and go. New roles come up. Uh, church pastors, they get old and they retire. Don't worry, Phil's not that old. But, uh, but leadership succession, it's just part and parcel of our world. It's just the reality. And it always will be part of our world because primarily people get old and they retire and we all eventually die. There will always be new leaders who come and go. And so I ask, how do you feel about leadership succession? Because to have a new leader brings lots of optimism, but also lots of skepticism. And you see this again all the time. You know, a new CEO or a new boss turns up at work, and then they begin their time with this great visionary speech about how great things are going to be and where they're going to take the company and do all these lovely things. And uh, half the employees, usually the really young employees, they think, wow, that sounds great. You know, this new leader sounds awesome. Look at all the places where this company's going to go. It's so good. And the other half, who've usually been working there for a decade or two, they go, oh, yeah, heard that before. The last guy said the same thing. And uh, our share price went down 20%. And now we don't even get free lunches anymore. That's how hopeless the last guy was. But, but that's been part of the ebb and flow of one in two kings. And you've got to remember this. Uh, we, we looked at this a year ago. So try to cast your memory back not only to last week, but to last year. But that has been the ebb and flow of one and two kings. There has been leadership succession over and over again. Just think about it. What do we, what do we read every one or two chapters so far in one kings and two kings? We read, king such and such died. Then king such and such, son of that last king, became king in Judah. Or became king in Israel. We hear that every couple of chapters. And every time there's this announcement of a new king, if you remember again our last series, there's both optimism and skepticism. Why? Because what are we waiting for every time there's an announcement of a new king? We're waiting to read, will this king be one who does right in the Lord's sight like King David before him? Or will this king be one who does evil in the Lord's sight like Jeroboam son of Nebat? That's all we're waiting for. Every time there's a new king announced, we're waiting for that line. Will he be good? Will he be evil? And if you just remember last week where we left off, just look briefly, 2 Kings chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Look back to last week, chapter 1, verse 17. What do we read there? We read, Ahaziah died. There goes the king. Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Since he had no son, Joram became king in his place. There's the new king. And so what are we waiting for now as we start chapter 2? We're waiting to read, is he a good one or an evil one? But it doesn't come. 
we don't read if he's good or bad until we get to chapter 3. And that's because the usual pattern gets paused to deal with one important matter, a more important leadership succession. Because have a look now, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2, because what do, we, what do we read there? We read, The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah, the great prophet of God, up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so what we've got with chapter 2 is a leadership succession. But this time, it's not just another king. You know, not just one of the kings, and so which is the next king in line. This time, it's God's prophet. And this time, it doesn't just depend on uh, bloodline. It doesn't just depend on family heritage. No, no, this one depends on God's appointing. And given that so far, every king in the northern kingdom of Israel, remember there's the south, Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel, given that every king in the north so far has done evil in the Lord's sight, the appointment of the prophet of God in Israel is as important as things get. Because without a good prophet... The northern kingdom has no chance. They don't have the word of God without a good prophet. They're completely void of the word of God if this next guy is not a good prophet. But, this will test your memories, we've already had a sneak peek into who comes next after Elijah, who will succeed him. And we looked at this literally a year ago, September 2021, 1 Kings 19. I don't expect you to remember it. But let me refresh your memory. It's up on the screen. 1 Kings 19, we read this. It said, the Lord said to Elijah, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel Maholah as prophet in your place. And so ever since 1 Kings 19, we've been waiting for this chapter We've been waiting to see Elisha become the new Elijah. But it's more than that. Because just look again up on the screen. Look again at 1 Kings 19 on the screen. You see, Hazael has not yet been appointed as king over Aram. That won't happen until 2 Kings chapter 8. And Jehu, who's also mentioned there in 1 Kings 19, he hasn't been appointed as king over Israel yet either. That won't happen until 2 Kings chapter 9. It all happens later on. And each time, it's Elisha who makes it happen, not Elijah. And so this leadership succession we're just about to read over, to to read about, this, this handing on of the reins of God's prophet from one to the next, it's actually about God fulfilling his purposes. It's about God fulfilling his plans in Israel. And it's not some same old, same old leadership succession in that way. This is the purposes of God. That's what we're going to read. So having said all that, let's uh, look at how this succession happens. And we're up to point one now. If you've got your outline there, that will be helpful. Point one, Elijah is taken. And it's worth uh, saying from the beginning, as you uh, heard this chapter read, as Benny uh, read it uh, in, in lovingly for us, uh, the language and the story being told here, it's pretty simple. It's not hard to follow. It's not complicated language. But it's very curious I hope you noticed that as you read it. Like, for instance, why is Elijah trying to travel from all these different places? Is, is, is he trying to get away from Elisha? Did you notice that? Just let me show you. Look, look at verse 1. Look from the end of verse 1. So there we have Elijah and Elisha together. They were traveling from Gilgal. 
And in verse 2, Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here in Gilgal, for the Lord is sending me on to Bethel. But Elisha replied, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they, Elijah and Elisha, went on to Bethel. But it doesn't happen only once. It happens three times. Look now at verse 4. Verse 4. There they are. They're in Bethel now. In verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here in Bethel, because the Lord is sending me to Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they, together, Elijah and Elisha, went to Jericho. And then we see the same thing again in verse 6, but this time it's, it's to the Jordan. And so what's going on here? Is Elijah trying to get rid of Elisha? Uh, do you remember those days, uh, if you've got a little brother or a little sister, when your friends would come around to your house and all you'd do all day is try to run away from your little brother or little sister? You'd go from this room to that room to outside to the park, just trying to get, rid of, trying to get away from them. And every time you turn around, there's their kind of mischievous little grin. They're following you around like a bad smell. Uh, do you remember those days? I remember those days, but I was the bad smell. <laughs> My sister did not appreciate it. But, but is, that what's, is that what's going on? Is Elijah just trying to get rid of Elisha like a bad smell? Well, it can't be. Again, Elijah knows, remember 1 Kings 19, he knows that Elisha needs to be appointed. And when we get to the end of chapter 2, that's what happens. Elisha gets appointed. So it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense for Elijah to try and avoid that or get rid of him. No, I think what's happening here is that Elisha is given every chance to back out of his appointment. You see, if Elisha does not want to become God's new prophet, if he doesn't want to be the new Elijah, well, he's given chance after chance to jump ship. You see, remember, Elisha has been following Elijah for a while now. And I know you've got to remember this from last year, but if you remember 1 Kings, it was hard being Elijah. It was a rubbish job, to put it frankly, to be God's prophet in Israel. It was a tough gig. You'd, you'd never choose it. No one's going to put their hand up and say, hey, I want to be the next Elijah. It was a rubbish job. It was painful. It was full of sorrow. It was full of mocking. See, the only reason you would ever choose to be the new Elijah is if God asked you, is if God appointed you, and is if you loved God and were faithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so what Elisha is saying by sticking with Elijah and following him, sticking to the plan, he's saying, I'm in. You know, warts and all, I'm loyal to the God of Israel. And really, this shouldn't surprise us about Elisha, because again, just to go back to 1 Kings 19, and do you remember what Elisha did when Elijah first turned up and met him? Uh, Elisha, he was in the fields. He was going about his day job. He was with 12 teams of oxen. He was with his bulls plowing the fields. That's what he did for a job. And then Elijah turns up, and as soon as he does, Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, and immediately Elisha does. He goes, he kisses his family goodbye. He says goodbye to his community. And up on the screen, look at what he does next. 1 Kings 19. When Elijah caught him, then Elisha took his team of oxen, all 12 team of them, and he slaughtered them. And with the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he then cooked the meat of the oxen and gave it to the people. He gave it to his community and they ate. And then he left and he followed Elijah and served him. And so from that first moment that Elisha was called, he, he left his whole livelihood behind to follow God's prophet. He, he didn't even pass on his oxen. 
and all the wooden equipment he had to plow the fields to someone else. He could have done that. He could have said to someone in his hometown, hey, you know, look after my oxen. There's lots of them. Look after my equipment. I might be back. I might come back. No, no, he, he burnt it all because he had no need for it anymore. He was all in, warts and all, loyal to God and his prophet. And just as a side note, isn't that just a beautiful picture of faithfulness to God? God calls him and Elisha leaves his comforts behind. He, he leaves his wealth. If you've got 12 teams of oxen back then, you're doing very well. You've got wealth. And yet he leaves it all behind. And he doesn't even just leave it behind. He disposes of it. He uses it all up generously to his community. And then he leaves because he thinks, what does it matter anymore? I don't need it. And so at this point, as Elijah is just about to be taken by the Lord, we're supposed to see that Elisha is a worthy successor. He's a loyal successor. But the other curious detail has to do with the sons of the prophets. Uh, and I hope you noticed them as it was read out. But every place that Elijah and Elisha go to, did you notice that there are the sons of the prophets? And I think they're different groups in each town. And so when they're in Bethel, there they are. In Jericho, there they are. Then there's 50 of them, we're told, that go to the Jordan. And we don't know much about these guys. They've come up once in 1 Kings 20. And we'll see them lots more as we continue in 2 Kings, these sons of the prophets. But the main reason that they are in every place that Elijah and Elisha go to is because once Elijah is taken, once he's not around anymore, these sons of the prophets, they will now serve Elisha. And they'll need to listen to him. And they'll need to respect him as God's great prophet. And so it's important that they see all that happens with Elijah and Elisha. It's important that they see that Elisha remains loyal to God and loyal to Elijah. And that the mantle is passed on to him, which we'll see in a minute. And you see, this is just all part of good succession planning. If you want a good succession planning plan, then a new leader, you want the team members to be on board with him. You want them to be confident in the new leader. And I love the little bit of dialogue that happens between uh, the sons of the prophets and Elijah. I hope you noticed it as it was read out because it's supposed to be comic. But have a look at verse 3. Verse 3, the sons of the prophets, they came out to Elisha and they said, Hey, do you know that the Lord will take your master away today? Yes, I know. Be quiet, says Elisha. And then again, they say, verse 5, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, hey, do you know your master will get taken away today? He says, yes, I know. Now be quiet. Quit rubbing it in. It's, it's, it's supposed to be comic. But it just shows that everyone knows what's about to happen. Elijah knows. Elisha knows. The sons of the prophets know. And so we get the third curious bit of detail, Elijah and the whirlwind. So you look from verse 11. Verse 11. So as they, Elijah and Elisha, continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. And that was it. Now verse 12, the end of verse 12 there. Then Elisha never saw him again. Elijah was taken. And at this point, there's not a whole lot more to say. Uh, this is weird. It, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's miraculous. It's not normal. We're not see, supposed to see this and hear this and think, wow, isn't that kind of like what you see every second Sunday? It's not. It's weird. 
But that's the point. Something incredible, miraculous, momentous is going on. And the text, it just doesn't tell us why Elijah was taken in this way. Uh, We know from the Bible, if there's a whirlwind and there's a miraculous work of God, that the whirlwind is often a symbol for God. Uh, We know that God often acts miraculously when there's this whirlwind sort of um, manifestation happens. But why Elijah in particular is taken in this way, we just don't know. It doesn't tell us. Uh, It could be to do with, with the future promise about Elijah being the John the Baptist. Remember how John the Baptist is the Elijah to come? It could be because of that. It could be because of those future promises, but we don't know. But what we do know is that Elijah, the great prophet, is now gone. We won't hear about him or see him anymore. And before we move on to see how Elisha is now the new Elijah, it's just worth stopping and seeing just how beautiful a moment this would have been for Elijah. Again, just remember his life. See, Elijah had a hard life. If you remember 1 Kings from last year, the kings of Israel, they hated him, all of them. Do you remember Jezebel, one of the king's wives? What did she do? She vowed to destroy Elijah. It was her mission to destroy him. And when Elijah was there up on Mount Carmel, do you remember that from last year? You know, there were the the prophets of Baal, 400 of them. And then there was was, uh, Elijah up on the mountain. It was a great challenge. You know, which one's the real God? Who was there with Elijah on his team? No one. He was by himself. Or again, 1 Kings 19, Elijah cried out. It's up on the screen. He cried out this to God after that moment. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but all of Israel have abandoned the Lord God. They've killed your prophets with their swords. I alone, Elijah, am left, and they're looking to kill me too. And even last week, what did we see? Three lots of 50 men, army men, sent to kill Elijah. You see, it's been a hard slog for him. None of it was easy, but the whole time he was faithful. The whole time he was loyal to the Lord of Israel, even at great cost to himself. And yet when that chariot came, when when the Lord came to take him home, to, to, to take him to be with him in heaven, we have this most beautiful moment. You see, in that moment, Elijah had no regrets about following the Lord of Israel. He had no regrets for being faithful in all that it cost him. Uh, You know that old song? Some of you might, some of you might know. Uh, Sadly, it's been made into an English rugby song. But you know that old song? Uh, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. People know that song at all? A couple of hands. Give me some hands. Good, good. I'm a terrible singer, but I'll give it a go. Uh, but that comes from this part of God's word. It was, it was actually written as a reminder, that song, for the Christian, that when life gets hard and the daily slog gets you down, remember you can look forward to that day when God will carry you home. Uh, I love the Johnny Cash version. It's, uh, it's uh, my favorite version of the song. And here are some lyrics up on the screen. And he, he sings this. And again, they're across from the Jordan, right? Well, I looked over Jordan. What did I see? I won't sing this time. Uh, Carrying for to carry me home. There was a band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Well, I'm sometimes up and I'm sometimes down, coming for to carry me home. But I know my soul is heavenly bound, coming for to carry me home. 
And you see, isn't that our great hope? Isn't that our great hope too? Because the fact is, this world will never be right. Forget the leaders who come and tell you they'll fix things and make things perfect, they won't. They never do and they can't. And for some of us, like Elijah, faithfulness to God will mean all sorts of pain, will mean all sorts of sorrow, all sorts of difficulties. But that day when God comes to carry us home, there won't be an ounce of regret in your heart. Not a single ounce of regret for living for your God. Just a beautiful moment in being heavenly bound. See, this is the greatest of days for Elijah, and it will be for us too. But we're up to point two now, and we'll move much more quickly. Elijah, the new Elisha, the new Elijah. You see, the simple thing we can't miss from this chapter is how Elisha is the next prophet. He's the new Elijah. That everything in this chapter is written for us to see that. So just look at verse seven. Look back to verse seven. There's Elijah. This is before he was taken away. And he takes his mantle, he takes his cloak, and he strikes the Jordan, and it parts to the right and to the left, and they cross over. And so it's no accident that then Elisha picks up that same mantle and does the same thing. See, the point is the leadership has passed on. Uh, Elisha has taken up the mantle, literally, which is where we get that expression. Well, look at verse 15 now. Have a look at verse 15. When the sons of the prophet, when they see Elisha part the Jordan exactly like Elijah did, what do they conclude? They say the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they bow down to the ground in front of him. And even, we, even when we get that strange bit where the sons of the prophets ask Elijah to go in, uh, ask Elisha to go in search for him, just in case you know he landed somewhere else. And, and again, it's comical that Elisha goes, "No, don't go," and they insist. They go, "All right, go. Waste your time. Not my problem." But the, the point of them going and searching and not finding him is so that we know Elijah is gone. There's no doubting it. Elisha is the new Elijah. And just in case we still don't get the point, just notice the places that Elisha then travels back through. Because it's the exact same places as before. So at the beginning of chapter 2, we get Elijah and Elisha there together, and they travel from Bethel to Jericho, then across the Jordan. And now, what do we get with Elisha? We get Elisha traveling back from the Jordan, back to Jericho, back to Bethel and that's on purpose and in each one of those places what Elisha does is he shows that he's the new Elijah he does something to show that he's God's prophet and we've already seen what he does in the Jordan he parts the river in the same way that Elijah did and he crosses over but then look at verse 19 what does he do in Jericho verse 19 he turns up to Jericho and the people of Jericho they ask for help they say that the water is no good and therefore the land is unfruitful and so Elisha performs this sign, verse 20. He heals the water. And there's heaps of background here. We don't have the time to chase it up. But uh, Joshua, another one of God's uh, prophets, when he took Israel into the land and landed in Jericho, he cursed the land. That's why it couldn't have, uh, that's why the water was no good. But now this new prophet comes, this next prophet of God, and he removes the curse. It shows that Elisha is the new prophet. And then we get another sign in Bethel. So now have a look at verse 23, the next town into Bethel. But this time it's not a blessing, but a curse. And so we get this strange event with young boys and hungry bears, which is a strange story, but a favorite with uh, bald men everywhere. Uh, when it was read out just before Benny was reading it, I saw, I'm not going to say who, one bald man in, in uh, the congregation here, and we caught eyes, and he went, yes. 
So there you go. Favorite with bald men uh, everywhere. But, but this is what we need to understand. Bethel is the capital city of Israelite idolatry. Again, remember last year, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the first king uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, he set up two golden calves, one in Dan and the other in Bethel, for all the people to come and prostitute themselves towards and worship as an idol. And so what we're expecting as we come to Bethel is opposition. And in verse 23, we get this group of young boys. We don't know how old they are. They could be anywhere from 8 to 18 years old. Could even be a mix of those ages. But what they do is they harass Elisha. And uh, trigger warning for the bald men amongst us. Because they say, verse 23, to Elisha, they say, Go up, baldy. And they say to him, they taunt him, you know, go up, you baldy. And in saying go up, they're probably meaning, you know, go up and worship at Bethel. Go up to the shrine, go up to the mountain and worship at Bethel, like, or, like everyone else in Israel. Really, they're trying to say, you're no Elijah. Just go and prostitute yourself like the rest. And it could be that they call Elisha baldy in contrast to Elijah, because was Elijah bald? Do you remember Elijah from last week? He is an hairy man. So it could be that there's this contrast between baldy and hairy. And again, if that's the case, and the point is, you're no Elijah. They're taunting him. You're no great prophet of the Lord. Which was a very costly thing for them to say. Because look at verse 24. Elisha turned around, looked at them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then what did the Lord do? The Lord sent two female bears who mauled 42 of them. And I know as we read that, except for a couple of bald men, uh, it actually makes us feel quite uncomfortable. It makes us kind of think, oh, is that right? Is, is this a good thing? But part of the point is that it should make us feel uncomfortable. You see, don't miss the big picture. The big picture is Elisha is the new Elijah. There's no doubting it. There's no mistaking it. Therefore, you people of the northern kingdom of Israel, you be very, very careful how you respond to God's prophet. And we've seen two responses. Jericho, they call him Lord. And they approach him with respect and they're blessed. Bethel, they call him Baldy. And they approach him with taunts and they're severely cursed. You see, reject and mock the prophet of God at your great cost. That's the point there. But as we finish, I want to get back to where we started at the question, uh, with the question of leadership succession. Because hopefully by now you're very clear. 2 Kings 2, it's about leadership succession. A new prophet, the old prophet, now there's a new prophet. It's all been done. And as we read on in 2 Kings, we'll see God do all sorts of incredible things through his prophet Elisha. Uh, Just like he did with Elijah. And just like God did with Joshua and Moses in the past. But spoiler alert, Elisha dies. We get to 2 Kings chapter 13 and Elisha's time comes to an end just like Elijah's. And when Elisha dies and when he's come, his time comes to an end, things are not great in Israel. Things are not put right. And none of that is Elisha's fault. Elisha was, was faithful. God did amazing things through him. But it kind of leaves you on the side of skepticism. He comes another great prophet. He comes another one of God's men. And yet things are still not good. Things are still not right. And it's not that God has failed. It's that God always had another succession plan in mind. He had a final succession plan in mind. See, this is really important. 
When you read the Old Testament, you need to pay careful attention to what a name means. And Elisha's name means God saves. And one of the other great leaders of the Old Testament, Joshua, his name means the Lord saves. And I'm sure we all know that Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And that's no accident. You see, God always had this great succession plan in mind in the same way that Moses prepared the way for the next leader, Joshua, and that Elijah now prepared the way for Elisha. Well, John the Baptist, the new Elijah to come, he would prepare the way for Jesus. And so 2 Kings 2, it ultimately teaches us that there is one final leadership succession. And I just want you to look up, up on the screen at a map up on the screen for a moment. And I hope this blows your mind. But you see, where was Moses when he passed on the leadership to Joshua, to the one who was called the Lord saves? Where was he? Where were they? They were right where that arrow is pointing. They were at a place across the Jordan near Jericho. And just what we've read now, 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah passed on the leadership to Elisha, uh, to, uh, to the one who is called God saves, where did that happen? Across the Jordan near Jericho. And when the Elijah to come, John the Baptist, declares in John's gospel that the one who comes after me will surpass me. And when Jesus, the one who's called the Lord saves, is commissioned for his ministry. Remember, the spirit comes down on Jesus. He's baptized. John baptizes him. Where did that take place? Right there. Right where the arrow is up on the screen. In a place called Bethany, across the Jordan near Jericho. See, these parts of God's word were written hundreds of years apart. There's no accident here. You see, you can't miss what is happening with Jesus. Jesus is the final leader. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus was the final prophet of God's people. And why does that matter? It matters because this leader never dies. Death doesn't hold him down. This leader never moves to a new role. He never retires. He never lets us down. So just imagine being one of those faithful Israelites in the time of one and two kings. There you are, faithful Israelite, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to send his, his new leader to come along and to rid the place of sin and to finally get rid of idolatry and wickedness. And it never happens. But for us today, we don't have to wait. The great king and prophet Jesus has come, the one whom John the Baptist spoke of as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's come. And he will never move on and he will never be replaced. And in that sense, it it never matters ultimately whoever your next boss is in your job and if things get better or not at work. It never matters who our next prime minister will be with all the promises they bring. You know, the next Trump, make America great again. It didn't really happen. None of that stuff ultimately matters. It doesn't even matter who your next church leader is, as long as they teach you from God's word, of course. You see, all human leaders come with visions and dreams and hopes and aspirations, but all of those human leaders, they move on. They all ultimately die, and none of them can ultimately save or make this world right. Even Elisha, we'll see him do great stuff, but when we get to the end of his time israel is still a mess he can't make things ultimately right but in jesus we have god's final leader who never disappoints us 
who never gets held down by death and as the leader is coming back to put all things right once and for all. Amen to that.